Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves as a sexual health communications platform from all angles, educating people on how to navigate STI stigma. We are, as a result of this Oregon Health Authority podcast series, becoming more of like a pleasure positive space. Um, and again, this is just learning from people in the state of Oregon about their particular experiences with navigating STI stigma, a positive diagnosis, and then being able to move forward from that and what that looks like. And our goal here is to be able to formulate a foundation for an intervention thing, I don't know what it's going to look like or what it's going to be called, to serve as a an STI minimization tool. This episode, we have Elle with us, who is 27 years old, uh, uses she, her pronouns, and was diagnosed with HSV-1. You identify as sex positive, you are heterosexual, and you had an interesting experience with your healthcare provider. Was all that right? Yeah, that was all right. right. Cool. See, I read. I can retain. <laughs> I can retain a little bit of information. Uh, I just looked at the survey. I'm giving people a survey to take for this, so that we can collect the information um, as a way of presenting this to the Oregon Health Authority and let them know that I'm doing what I said I was going to be doing. So. Um, I very much appreciate you being here. I need three more people. (laughs) And um, yeah, you are one of my last four guests on this series. I have a podcast recording about an hour after we wrap up with this one. And then I'll just need those three more people. And this will be closed out. And I can start sharing this with people. So um, just opening it up, uh, I would like to hear about your experience with being diagnosed with HSV-1. You can just tell the story and then I'll ask questions. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is actually a really recent diagnosis. I believe it was like middle of March, late March. This year? This year. 2022. 2022. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so this is new, new. This is new, new. I didn't know that. <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I'm just shocked. I'm like, oh, are you okay with talking about this now? Because it's like April, May, June, July. Yeah, about four months into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's. <laughs> wow. This this is gonna be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess my my uh, experience is I guess maybe slightly unique. Um, I only became like sexually active towards the middle of last year after um, about a year and a half relationship had ended. Um, And going into it, I had a lot of shame around sex and around desiring sex. Um, I had grown up under the impression that sex wasn't something that I was interested in and expressing that to like my my parents, particularly my mom. I think I got uh, praised a little too hard for that uh, because when my mind started to to, to change, I felt like, well, you know, now I'm going to be a bit of a disappointment, a bit of a, a promiscuous little thing to deal with. And so I um, had started doing online dating and meeting people, and I had not really thought about routine STI checks. Um, I had mostly thought about birth control, particularly for managing PMS symptoms and for that extra protection. Um and so when I woke up one morning with a mysterious pain and feeling in, in the lower regions, um, I was definitely on high alert. Um, and when some other symptoms followed suit, like I, I immediately contacted Planned Parenthood 
Um, and my naive brain thought, well, I have an appointment with them in a couple of weeks to get a, a birth control prescription. Like they can check me out then. Right. And they were like, no, if you have symptoms, like we'll get you in today. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so going into it, this was like my first pelvic exam even. Um, so it was a lot of new things in one day. Um, I would say generally like the people that were working at the Planned Parenthood were, were very kind and very patient. Um, I was a sobbing mess. I was having difficulty with like urinating as well. So I was in a lot of pain and I can't pee in a cup to save my life. I always, (laughs) I always skip urine tests. I can't do them. So it was, I was there for like a couple of hours and I think I was one of the last appointments of the day and just like kind of working through everything took a minute. Um, and you know, when she got the whole speculum, is that the right word? Yeah. 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 Um, there, she inserted it and there was some pain. Um, she said that there was definitely something going on. She saw a sore and that's when HSV was brought up. Um, and that was definitely scary. Um, because in my mind I was like, shit, this is something permanent. Did I just mess everything up? Like, is this my, my due punishment? (laughs) Um, but I I think the the painful part of the diagnosis was like all the waiting that's involved and not getting specific and digestible resources before you leave. Um, so I had to do a lot of looking on my own and I had to tell a couple of people, um, which was hard. So did you tell a couple of people or did you ask a couple of people? Like, hey, do you have herpes? I did not ask. I, one, of the, one of the interactions had only been a couple of days prior. And we had had an, like, a conversation about sexual health. I had told them like, I hadn't gotten tested recently. Um, but I hadn't had a ton of partners. They said they had tested recently and it all came back negative. Um, so that person was, I, it was like hard to tell that person because I felt like, whoa, this person takes their sexual health very seriously and I might've just put them at risk. Um, so so I waited until I actually got like the positive result for sure to even say anything, but no, I didn't do any asking. Um, I still don't know which partner I got it from. I very quickly was like, I don't need to know. I don't really feel like there's any blame to assign in this situation and it wouldn't be productive to like be mad at anyone for it. I think so the focus for me was just understanding what it means to have HSV1 so that I know what to do to to keep myself and other people all good. Mhm. Yeah. Uh when you received your diagnosis of HSV1, uh was there any particular wording that stood out? Like, did they explain to you that this could have been caused by someone having cold sores? Like, what? how was it explained to you when you received your diagnosis? So when I actually received the diagnosis, I saw, like, the test result on an online portal first. And it took them a couple of days to call me afterwards. Um, and that was just a very plain, like, hey, this came back positive. Um, within the portal, we're going to email you like a resource with some information. Prior to that, the, the doctor at Planned Parenthood had spoken a little bit about how HSV-1 can be um, given 
from oral to genital or genital aura oral um and that was that was a big shock like I feel like one of my biggest takeaways is that calling HSV1 oral and HSV2 genital is very misleading <laughs> and it's a it's one of like those I like, developed a bit of a gripe <laughs> yeah and that's something that a lot of people face is that a visual diagnosis pre-testing, a lot of doctors have it in their mind that HSV2 is always genital and HSV1 is always oral. Mm -hmm. So looking at a genital diagnosis, they go, oh, genital herpes, HSV2. Mm -hmm. And so it's good that you were able to get tested and hear that this is type 1. Even though where I'm at in my own journey now, what I'm finding is that it's more useful to just say genital herpes, oral herpes. Like, what does it matter if each of the viruses are still herpes and how people are going to receive that information? If you say, yeah, I got the kind of herpes you get from someone going down on you versus I got the kind of herpes that you get from having sex with someone, I don't know that the reaction's going to be the same. I think people's minds are going to go, oh, you can get it down there if they're unaware Mm -hmm. um, about oral herpes transmitting to people's genitals. And then on the other hand, it's like, oh, you just, you should be more careful with who you have sex with or something like that. And that's kind of where I'm feeling like this divisive language of HSV1 orally, HSV1 genitally, HSV2 orally, HSV2 genitally is entered, like it's it's messing us up Mm -hmm. because... Yeah, people can have HSV2 orally. We just don't. I haven't at least heard of it. Or yeah. heard from anyone who's like, I have oral HSV2. And if you're someone who's listening to this, like, I would like to hear from you too. Because I'm genuinely curious about the difference of experiences in that case. Um, <clears throat> but as far as the resources that you were given, um, what did you get? Like they sent you some information through the portal. Yeah, I got a, I think it was a link to a PDF, if I'm not mistaken, and it was really long, and it was really dense. It's not like something you're going to send to a partner for them to, like, you know, sit down and, and read. Like, it was it was pretty chunky. I felt like in the, the week that I was waiting, a week or so, or a few days I was waiting for the test results, it, it had to be a lot of, like, self-initiated research to, like, find resources myself. Naturally, the first thing I saw was Ella Dawson's TED Talk, and then I think I came upon your page from there, too, and I know, I feel like the knowledge is comforting, so why isn't there more of an initiative to educate? That's my question. That's a really good question, because I'm finding that there is discomfort within the medical community around talking to patients about sex. So if I have to talk to you about sexually transmitted infections, it's like, okay, you have this, here's the treatment for it. Go on, be on your merry way. However, there is also the component of prevention, like a healthcare provider interacting with someone who tests positive is oftentimes the first touch point of STD prevention. Because how that person leaves is going to determine what happens next Mm -hmm. with what they do with the information that they have, how they navigate relationships moving forward. There's a lot of components to it. If our healthcare providers can begin to not exclusively lock into looking at sex and sexuality as intercourse 
and begin to separate sex from that and then see sex on a spectrum of masturbating, of oral sex, of anal sex, of just foreplay, mutual masturbation, kink, BDSM, and what goes into that. I think that we're able to more so speak to people's risks factors Mm -hmm. as well as like what they can do in order to be and keep their partners as safe as they can be from STIs and talking about different ways to use barriers and not just when people have symptoms and come in for testing, but Mm -hmm. also if people are just coming in for routine testing, like I should be able to comfortably talk about ways to keep myself and my partners safe from or in any sort of sexual interaction that I'm having with other partners. Yeah. And doctors just aren't necessarily well practiced there. Um, Maybe it's because of the kinds of patients that they see on a regular basis. It could be poor education. And that's one of the things that this project is going to work towards is generally seeing what you need as an Oregon People who have tested positive for an SCI, what I'm consistently seeing is that there is a lack of sex positivity in the healthcare space of being comfortable with talking about sex. So um, I'm putting together a program project to be able to give healthcare providers practice taking a sexual history and speaking to patients of different identities. Uh, different sexual orientations who are involved in kink and BDSM or who have multiple partners uh, who do and don't use barriers, teaching them to be able to engage in dialogue with that patient in a way that is anti-stigmatizing, identity affirming, as well as I'm starting to say in like pleasure positive more so than sex positive. Yeah. And I'll begin to like dissect what that means uh, <laughs> later on. But um, <clears throat> yeah, that... Uh, my, my question from giving you all of that background, I guess, is you had to search for this information on your own. And it's a lot of work that goes into that. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, how would you have felt if your doctor offered you some like frequently asked questions? Like one of the most common things is or common questions is how to manage an outbreak. If you're mm-hmm. having an outbreak, you take the medication for it. Here's how it's subscribed, or here's how it's prescribed. <laughs> I keep saying subscribe. OnlyFans is all in my head. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, comment, subscribe. Right? <laughs> but um, being given that option, or if you're having frequent outbreaks, and what we can do is we can talk about taking it daily. Mm-hmm. There are some alternatives. If you don't want to take medication, there's lysine. You can also see how your body responds to outbreaks, what some of your triggers are. For some people, it's stress. For some, it's uh, just lack of fitness, physical activity. Like maybe you need to just do different things in order to see how your body's going to manage it. Another thing uh, that commonly comes up is disclosure. How to disclose to yes. a sexual partner hey, I am positive for HSV-1. Here's what that means. Here's how we can move forward. So being able to offer like some sort of resources specific to those things Mm -hmm. and then be able to ask you if you have any questions. Yeah. Because I'm sure they probably told you you have herpes and were like, do you have any questions? And you didn't have any questions because you don't know what to ask. (gasps) Yeah. And you're also in shock, right? Yeah, there was definitely that, that initial shock. I feel like if there are multiple multiple people on instagram who are able to build platforms that are providing this information to people who are looking for it 
there has to be a way to translate that into the healthcare system. Like yeah. we're, we're all, you have, like you said, 19 to 56 year, years old was like your age range with the people you're interviewing. A lot of those people are like online there. I, I, I don't understand why there couldn't be some sort of digital resource that's built that, cause you take home a packet of paper with a bunch of words on it and you're not going to read it. <laughs> like, I, I feel like there's a missed opportunity with having some sort of digital resource that's built, that's, that's accessible, that's user-friendly, that people are going to want to look at and that you can refer back to on your phone because they're, they're literally on us all the time. And especially something shareable, like with posts on Instagram, <laughs> it's a missed opportunity. Well, here's what I've run into. I'm not a credible resource mm -hmm. to urgent care facilities, doctor's offices. Um, I've asked about this and they're like, oh, we don't share information that's like not credible or we don't do it, it's spammy or self-promoting. And really what it takes is for like the general public to demand this shit. Yeah. Like, unfortunately, the general public has to be like, hey, y'all are not. Y'all are doing a disservice. You're missing out. Like what you just said, if we can get more of that, not to say that every influencer is right yeah. in what they share, but like if there were partnership, like I am a community-based organization mm -hmm. as being a nonprofit and going into this space. Like I take this very seriously. I think that I operate in a very professional manner. So as an organization, I'm more likely to be heard. However, if I were to just have a TikTok with 100,000 followers, not so much. Like I can't even get in touch with the CDC. I have been speaking to or about the CDC and tagging them in things and saying, hey, we need to do this better. Like I'm calling them in. I'm reaching out to people. I don't message people who work at the CDC on LinkedIn. Mm. Nothing. And part of me is like wondering if this is just like, if it's so obvious that this would be something that helps reduce new STI infections or STI transmission rates. Year over year, we see STI rates are on the rise. We need to do something about this. Let's throw money at it. And money's thrown at it. And yet STIs keep going up. Yeah. Here I am. I've been interviewing people and talking to them for the last five years. And what I'm learning is that this is where we need to go. We need to be empowering the people who have lived experiences with STIs. Give them a voice. Give them a platform. Mm -hmm. See what there is to learn from our experiences. And then combine that integrated into an intervention. And what we're learning is that the CDC prevention efforts are A, non-inclusive, non-applicable to some groups of people. Uh, for instance, lesbians who are told to use a condom to not get STIs. Yeah. What does that mean to to vulva owners who are having sex like how do you have safe sex with a condom when we're taught that a condom goes on a penis yeah with people who are non-monogamous and are communicating and being tested frequently and never get stis we're completely devaluing their experience and prioritizing someone who's serial monogamous who goes from relationship to relationship like your next relationship is a swipe away yeah right? you can swipe yourself into your next sexual encounter and these are the people who are being praised as more clean or mm -hmm. less risky. And there's no components to, uh, there's no emphasis on the communication piece. You can have sex without using barriers and not get an STI, but that requires testing on your status, communicating and being informed. And so these are all just things that are happening that 
there's no acknowledgement of. Um, Dr. Evelyn Dacker, who I'll probably reference in most of these episodes, uh, what she says is that uh, this came up in a conversation that we live in a sex negative society. And I've gone on a little bit further and say we live in a sex avoidant society. Mm-hmm. We avoid talking about sex. And in that avoidance, what happens is a lot of assuming occurs. Yes. So we're assuming that people are being tested. We're assuming that if someone has an STI that they won't want to have sex or they'll we can use a condom and we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. We're assuming that if a condom breaks or slips off, like, oh, you know, I'm almost done. Let me get this over with. And we're not talking about what happens in these instances. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and now uh, abortion being banned in certain states, like I think that this further emphasizes more of an importance to the conversation about what to do when things go wrong or yeah. uh, if a condom does break, if someone gets pregnant, like what are things that we need to be aware of to manage this, yeah. right? So, so much of our society's sex avoidance is really damaging us because like what I'm doing, it seems to be a simple solution in the podcast episodes of we need to empower people with the ability to communicate. We need Mm -hmm. to listen to us so that we can decrease the risk of STIs. And if that happens, then I mean, people get sick less and we know that America (laughs) runs off of people being sick. Yeah. And all of those people who get grant money, who get funding to uh, fight STIs or whatever it is that they do, like they stop getting that money when the STI rates go down Mm -hmm. and then something needs to evolve or change so that these people can keep their job. Yeah. What I'm doing, I am actively trying to put myself out of a job. And when that happens, I know I'm going to be fine. I'm going to just move on to the next thing, whatever Mm -hmm. that may be. But for people who've made a career out of this, like HIV prevention, I'm sure there's a way that they can cure HIV, but there's so much more money in treatment. And now that people aren't dying and you can just say, oh, well, let's sell this pill for people who have it to not pass it on to others. And Mm -hmm. oh, let's sell this other pill for people who don't have it to not contract it. And you know, thankful. I'm very thankful for these medications. I'm glad that they exist. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it's, I'm curious and I wonder, like, at what point are we going to begin to fix the problem and find the solutions and implement the solutions, you know? Yeah, it's frustrating dealing with a like a, a government organization that has given itself this authority to demand credible knowledge and want credible knowledge um they're in the position they have the money and the resources to bridge the gap between people who are spreading this information online and their desire for credible information i'm sure they could very easily build a team of people like you they could interview people with the lived experiences they could get user interface designers to to make some kind of app and team up with clinics and can be like here's your your one-stop shop like you can hear stories from actual people and then how they disclose here's I I think the other thing I had to figure out myself that having um an autoimmune disease it was a little more pertinent for me to get on an antiviral to kind of help reduce frequent outbreaks and it's it's like one piece of information that wasn't given because they're not looking at a whole picture it's the strategy seems to be here's your diagnosis be on your merry way 
we can't do anything to prevent these from happening. We can talk to people, but they're not going to change their behavior. And I just don't think that's true. I've had spoken to two people about the um, contraction from, you know, getting cold sores on your mouth and you can give it to someone on their genitals. And they didn't know that. And I could definitely see the gears turning in their head where they're like, well, I need to talk to my next partner about that because actually, hey, I do get cold sores on my mouth, you know? And it's frustrating. <laughs> it's so frustrating when this, like I said, the CDC has, has put itself as this authority figure, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really feel like we're getting looked out for. They just... It seems to nitpick any any solution that's offered. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, what autoimmune disease, if you don't mind me asking? Um, it's called undifferentiated connective tissue disease, which is a really long way of saying I have an overactive immune system, and um, it causes joint pain and fatigue. Um, but I I tend to test low for white blood cell count because it's attacking the healthy things. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How has herpes impacted that or has taking the medication done anything like has, has anything changed the other? So far I have only had one outbreak, which was the first one. Um, I'm glad I was able to get on the antiviral cause I believe that's helping <laughs> again, not a lot of information. So you don't always know. Um, but I also think I was in a, a unique position to know what it's like to live with a chronic health condition that's not going anywhere and that you have to manage and can change the way you approach things. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Cause there's people I speak to, we don't necessarily talk about it, but I like also have an autoimmune disease or there's something else going on and, most of the time the two don't necessarily impact each other in their experience yeah. like I'll ask and they'll go huh I never thought about that <laughs> like that's been a common response that I've gotten uh out of curiosity so you said in our survey that you are sex positive so what does that mean to you I think it's something that I'm still like coming into because um I've only like I said only recently started exploring my sexuality more um, and so I guess for me, it has been being more receptive to conversations about sex, to, um, getting rid of the shame that I had around sex, um, just generally becoming more comfortable with the topic and letting myself explore that area more. Okay. And when we speak to that exploration, so you mentioned that there was some shame, uh, like growing up, you kind of prided yourself on not being sexually active, uh, from what your experience has been with going through this acceptance in sex positivity, had you had access to, or understanding of the information that you're now coming across sooner do you think that this would have changed your relationship to sex as you made your debut, so to speak? Yeah, for sure. I've, I've always felt like knowledge is power. Like I, I take a lot of comfort in, in research and resources. And even if I have to reread them a few times, they're like really get it to sink in. Um, I definitely feel like more confident when I kind of have a bit of prep and know what I'm going into. Mm -hmm. And I guess like what has been some of the most useful information or resources for you since testing positive and transitioning into the exploration of your sexuality? I think it's, it's just knowing that 
these things are pretty normal. They're pretty common. It's it's not scary. Like the initial feelings are definitely scary and it's it's hard to get through like with HSV in particular, like that first outbreak is tough. Um I think just kind of learning the language around everything and then finding spaces in real life where you're meeting other people where you get to use that language and you see that other people are okay with broaching this topic. I know that goes beyond resources, but I think just starting to develop like the vocabulary and getting comfortable saying things out loud, like seeing that other people can do it makes me confident to then go and do that too. Yes, yes. I appreciate how you said that because it opens up this range of thought about how we don't hear people talk about sex Mm -hmm. to know how to talk about it. So when we're taught about sex, we're being spoken to, spoken at. We're not having engaging dialogue. We're not given the practice of interacting with another human being. And what this makes me think is like being able to practice negotiations of a game as a youth, being able to, hey, you know, here is this game I would like to play with you. Here are the rules. Here's my role. Here's your role. Um, do you want to play? Mm-hmm. And if you say yes, then yay, exciting. We, we can do that. If you say no, then I have to be willing and able to accept that and confidently leave respect you say thank you for taking care of yourself and go on and ask somebody else if they want to play Mm -hmm. or maybe if you don't like the rules of the game or if there's something about it that you're uncomfortable with or you just don't like in that moment being able to say hey i would love to play that game but here's what i need can we remove this part like what if we put a time limit on it if i don't like it like how do i get out of it in the moment because Mm -hmm. once you're in game mode you're in game mode so being able to have a safe word for the sake of talking to youth let's call it a safety statement (laughs) so as not to conflict the two to be able to end the game and you know go on and do something else yeah these ways of playing as youth I've only learned in the kink and BDSM realm of negotiations because we're talking about playing in a scene or how we're going to be intimate, how we're going to uh, play with each other, negotiating barriers, negotiating uh, how to say, how to ask what you need, how to say no if you don't know what you need, how to experience and how to, how to receive a no from someone, how yes. to say no, how to ask for what you need. These two things really go together. And for me and my personal experience, like I've learned that way later than I should have. Mm-hmm. And also like if, you know, the person that you're playing with is unsafe, unethical, unhealthy, you're able to know what resources and support you have accessible to you and where and how to access those so that then you are able to um, get what it is that you need. Yeah. So all of that long-windedness to say, like hearing what you said, I think that it might be more useful rather than you having had a pamphlet, but like some way of even connecting with these influencers on social media and seeing how they practice or even being invited to like a workshop or Mm -hmm. a practice disclosure or conversations about herpes like what do you think of that 
I think that would be great. I, I, especially the thing that I really wanted and I'm sure COVID had a role in maybe like killing this out a bit was like some form of a support group or a one-off workshop or something where you can see the people in front of you and it's like, okay, we're all here. We all have this common experience. Like I would have loved to hear from people who have had it for longer than me, you know, how to disclose and what their experience was. Um, I feel like the, to circle back a little bit, I guess, yeah, we can. like the subject of like the idea of sex avoidance, I feel like it, it only breeds two things. You're going to get people that are so deeply shameful, like I was, that they're afraid to say no, like I was in certain situations, because you don't want to, you don't want to cause any conflict. Or you're going to get people that are like so prideful because, well, I do this thing, even though it's like naughty, naughty, and they're not going to be able to take the no. <laughs> so I, I think like having some kind of like in-person option would be really cool too, to like hear somebody else say it out loud, be able to like repeat it back in a safe space where there's no, nothing's actually going on, but just to like actually practice saying something out loud, I think would have been, would have been helpful. What I'm finding uh, in my experience is being in sex positive spaces and being in places where consent, communication are emphasized. Like uh, I've gone to a sex club here in Portland and I've gone to like a game night. And at this game night, there have been um, there's games that you can play that say do this, don't do this or not don't do this, that, that say do this thing. And it's more of like an offering uh, mm-hmm. The way that we played, there was a group of us, and um, one of the things that you pulled was like, okay, you can either ask for do this or that, and then everyone's like super consent abiding, like, hey, all right, this says everyone touched this person, the person who pulls that, it was Jenga, um, and that block can say, okay, you can touch me anywhere except my hair, don't touch my face, don't mm-hmm. touch my butt, my genitals, whatever, you can say that. And it's a really good practice of establishing safety in learning to ask for what you want and yeah. say what you don't want. So the opportunity of something like that, like how, I'm not asking you this, but <laughs> how do we put ourselves in positions and spaces to where it's safe to ask for what we want and need around other people who are asking for what they want and need? Yeah, That practice is something that supports us in being empowered and being able to take our power back within ourselves so that we can have the kinds of relationships Mm -hmm. and interactions that we want. I feel like I'm uh, more into monogamy, but what I have learned over the past few months is like BDSM and ethical non-monogamy, all of that. There's there's so much respect and there's so much groundwork to like establish what's okay and what's not okay. I think we could all learn a lot from that. And I don't know why there's like any shame around either of those things because more often than not, like those people have so much respect and they, <laughs> I don't know. I just, we could, we could learn a lot. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you saying that as well because in our relationship structures, like, a lot of the similarities are really just um, a lot of the similarities is not what I meant to say. <laughs> so one of the things that I've learned that I wish that I would have been able to have in my relationships in general uh, is transparency. Mm-hmm. And I feel like 
with that transparency, a lot of people, when you look at heteronormative monogamy culture, take offense to things that many people that I'm finding in ethical or consensual non-monogamous relationships have already like done the work for yeah or work through um or it's like a an open healing experience whereas monogamy culture is you should already know you should know how to be monogamous Mm -hmm. right so you know that you shouldn't be thinking about another person you shouldn't want to have sex with another person no desire for another person it's just me and you against the world yeah that's the assumed expectation so when we talk about sex avoidant society there's the assumption and i'm not i'm not saying that monogamy is sex negative by any means what i'm saying is that society's expectations on relationships is very <sighs> sex negative doesn't fit because of its like connotation mm-hmm. so i want to say pleasure negative like your pleasure is supposed to come from me as your partner. Yeah. You shouldn't have to get it anywhere else. Yeah. And I think that there's more of an open understanding in non-monogamous relationships that, yeah, go, be independent. I'm not going to be all of your pleasure. I want my me time. You have your me time. If that me time includes somebody else or something else, <laughs> great, go get that. Because I know that when we reconnect, it's going to be a great experience. Mm-hmm. And we have more transparency because there isn't the risk of someone interpreting things the wrong way or feeling hurt by something someone does or says. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that's probably one of the biggest differences is the transparency and then like the co-creation of what the relationship's going to look like. Monogamy is done historically one way. Maybe there's more. Uh, (laughs) You can correct (laughs) me if I'm wrong. But with non-monogamous relationships, man, you really got to communicate. You really have to know yourself and you really have to be willing to know your partner and decide, okay, this is for us, this isn't. And you're co-creating what this relationship looks like rather than assuming that this is the framework of a relationship that we have, that we're going to have, and this is what we're building on. Yeah, I mean, with monogamy being the norm, a lot of us had, like, a a toxic version of monogamy modeled for us. And so, (laughs) with, like, with consensual non-monogamy, like, that I feel like it's new territory that you can, you get to build on your own more because you're not always following an example. You know what you just made me think of? What? Like, instead of calling it consensual or ethical non-monogamy, what if we call it mutual non-monogamy? Oh, that's... I like that. I feel like it removes cheating. Because, like, when you say non-monogamy, or if you say non-monogamy, people are like, ew, but cheating is non-monogamy, right? Yeah. And when you say ethical or consensual, it it sounds like real bougie. Uh Uh-huh. So if we call it mutual non-monogamy, where all parties involved are non-monogamous and aware that the other person's non-monogamous. I think, yeah. I think we might be on to something. That's, that, I like that. That's Ooh, a good phrase. Look what we did. <laughs> look what we did. I'm so sorry to have cut you off. You no, totally fine. Yeah, no, I just think with, with mutual non-monogamy, like you get to kind of build what that means for you because it hasn't been modeled for you yet. And I think if that's something that we can bring into monogamous relationships where we can build this the way that we want to build this, like separate of society's expectations of monogamy, then transparency is something that can be incorporated more and, you know, 
just neutral chats about STIs can be more normal, more boring, <laughs> more common. Um, I've definitely been trying to practice transparency with the people in my life who are not my sexual partners, so like friends and stuff. Um, and I, I think that's starting to like help build confidence more. Um, I, I had a friend that had, has HPV and he had run into a lot of the same issues where it's like, you ask for information and they're like, well, this information's not going to change the, what's going on. And people, I didn't get vaccinated. Uh, I think it was like 11 or 12 when the vaccine started coming out. So I didn't get vaccinated and they don't recommend it over, I believe, 26 or 27 because they're like, well, you've already been exposed to it. But that's assuming that someone has been sexually active for a very long time. And it's like, just give me the shot, doc. So um, having those that that bridge, like that common experience, like that comes from transparency. And um, I recently... I was with a group of friends and we were having a discussion over this like little card game that we were playing. It was, it was called Damn Right or Hell No. And the subject was elderly people having sex in nursing homes. And we were all like, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, one girl was like, I, I think like nursing homes, there's like quite a uh, high rates of STIs in there. Um, or she had said STDs. And I had just casually slipped in. Like, I think a lot of people are leaning more towards STIs. And this girl, or someone asked, like, what's the difference? The girl next to me said, one's politically correct. And I got so disappointed. But she was not aware that I have HSV-1. And I felt myself getting, like, a little bit upset. And I was like, this is me. This is me assuming that she doesn't want to change her mind about this. Mm -hmm. So I pulled her aside and we had a one-on-one where I talked to her about my experience and, and kind of what I was feeling in that moment, separate of, you know, calling one thing right and one thing wrong, but just like, just focusing on the transparency aspect. And we had a really good, healthy conversation oh, and, good. and she was willing to like open her mind. Yeah. So I think that infection is like, we can have an infection and not know it. Mm-hmm. When we have a disease, we know we have a disease. Yeah. Right. So infections tend to not show symptoms. If you ever find yourself in that conversation again, mm-hmm. uh, your friends sound fun. I want to, I want to hang out with y'all. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> and it's weird because they're all from Florida, which is what I'm not. That's not a great state. <laughs> wow. Um, so I guess like big takeaways from this conversation, we are going to start using mutual non-monogamy. That's a great one. Sure. That's a great one. <laughs> Um, and like being able to bring that into our relationships and co-create monogamous relationships because we can still talk about what a monogamous relationship looks like. I feel like there should still be some negotiating what, what that is. Like there's just the assumption, like we all know what that looks like, but Mm -hmm. do we, (laughs) when we've had like certain, we've all had different versions modeled. Yes. Because, like, there's also emotional cheating. And mm-hmm. then there's, like, I don't want you hanging out with the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot there that, again, sex avoidant. And when I say sex avoidant, I think sex positive, not exclusively meaning intercourse positive where you're okay with how people do relationships. I mean sex positive in the sense of you've also done your own inner work. And you're aware of where you are and what your triggers might be and what other people's actions may influence within you to where you can deal with that and not like make that your partner's responsibility. 
So in a sex negative or sex avoidant society, you know, I can avoid what jealousy really makes me feel. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want you talking to other men when you're my girlfriend, right? What, well, okay, where is that coming from? Like, yeah. what is that? Like, let's talk about that because I have, you. If let's say you have male friends, right? So what does that mean for your friendships? You want me to just stop? being friends with these people because (laughs) you are unwilling to address where the root of this jealousy is coming from yeah whatever it is that you're feeling is coming from um there's that and then also the incorporation of like uh discussions and dialogue and interactions with uh, the information of how to practice disclosing how to talk about your sti like having it modeled rather than just being given a pamphlet of this is how many people have herpes and here's what types there are. Like, yeah. I don't do nothing. It for does me. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they think the information does nothing because they're not presenting it in the right way. And that could be it too. But um, to offer it in like a frequently asked questions way of mm-hmm. most common questions are how do I manage this outbreak? How do I tell partners? Yeah. And then if someone were to offer that to you and then ask if you have any questions, like that's that's something I absolutely want to emphasize as a result of this podcast series is when I instruct educators or providers on how to deliver a diagnosis to be able to offer, okay, here's how you manage the symptoms. Option A, take the pill as needed or daily if you have continued symptoms. Mm -hmm. Uh, As far as disclosing to potential partners, like, do you want something for that? Bam, it's as simple as that. They don't have to go into, well, if you're in this situation, tell your partner, blah, blah, blah. But the stats are not really cutting it for me anymore, (laughs) nor are they cutting it for everyone else. Um, And then, yeah, like some of the components of sex positivity that you got after your diagnosis would have been useful to you pre-diagnosis. And I think that that is absolutely worth emphasizing um, in looking at the overview of these podcast episodes. Um, was there anything else? Is there anything else that you want to add or anything that maybe you just want to say that maybe haven't, uh, that hasn't been covered? I don't think so. Okay. All right. Well, L, I very much appreciate you making the time and taking the ride out here to allow me to interview you <laughs> and help me with getting this uh, project squared away. Thank you oh so much. Um, this concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's so funny because I had to tell myself not to say prescribe, right? <laughs> Subscribe to this podcast on whatever listening platform you are on. And I can be found on social media, primarily Instagram at H on my chest. If you want to donate, Courtney Brain at Venmo or Cash App, all one word. PayPal and Patreon is SPFPP, the acronym for something positive for positive people. We are still paying for people to get therapy. We are still... Uh, speaking to people one-on-one, I say we like, it's not just me. <laughs> I talk to everybody. Um, if you want to pay it forward, if you want to talk to me, like, I right, let's do it. If you want to work together, if you have a media inquiry, you want me to come talk to your school or whoever, um, feel free to reach out. Like, I'm here. I'm available. Um, I work you know, as an educator, so I'm, like, learning how to educate uh, beyond just talking about my personal experience and uh speaking from like a coaching perspective but yeah if you need that i'm here too hey but uh yeah till next time stay pleasure positive Ooh. Ooh. and mutually non-monogamous <laughs> <laughs> all right peace